Welcome to the Original Doll Iconography. I am your host, James Rodriguez. On the Original Doll Iconography, I unpackage music with the people who create it. We go behind the scenes and learn about the stories and the evolution of so many great songs by so many great icons. And at the same time, we help out charity. For more information, join me on Instagram, the.original.doll, or go old school with the website, theoriginaldoll.com. Big shout out to my Patreon supporters. You all rock. Because of you, we're able to keep this show going. And to join that community, go to theoriginaldoll.com. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording, ripping, stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it. Today we are joined by Brad Sundberg. Many of you might know Brad. For those who don't, that's okay. That's what I'm here for. Brad joined Michael Jackson's team during the production of Captain EO in 1985 and remained with Michael Jackson as one of his engineers and technical director for nearly 18 years. Brad was actively involved in the studio production of four of Michael's studio albums, Bad, Dangerous, History, and Blood on the Dance Floor. He also worked on remixes and edits for countless singles, short films, and tour preparations associated with these projects. We're going to get right to the show. And don't forget, if you are a first-time listener, thank you so much for joining us. Go through the other episodes, check out those other guests, and learn about these iconic songs. My name is James Rodriguez. This is Iconography, the original doll. Brad, can you please talk about what MJ's nickname for you is? Because it made me smile. <laughs> well, well, first of all, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So thank you for uh, for having me. Uh, man, we just jump right into the uh, the crazy stuff. Now, Michael did have a nickname for me uh, during the Bad album. We were working on the song Bad, and he came in during you know between vocals and. And he was just kind of singing bad, bad, really, really bad. And he looked at me and he said, you know, no, it's Brad, Brad, really, really Brad. So that just kind of stuck for years. And he actually gave me an album <laughs> credit of uh, Brad, Brad, really, really Brad. So yeah, I'm kind of proud of that. <laughs> See, I love this. And the funny thing is, it's these are those fun stories and everything that like you've been able to share with with the world. These are fun things. And it actually goes to... The relationship that you had with you know michael jackson and i think it's it's kind of phenomenal so just thank you for being here and allowing us to ask you one million questions thank you <laughs> and, and on that note it's kind of funny because as i do these i do the best i can to kind of take in in the best possible way take michael off the pedestal and make him human and michael was a genuinely sweet man and uh, it's it's fun to kind of introduce people to to michael not Michael Jackson, the performer so much, but Michael. This is why I love doing this, being able to get those things, because we get insight into the behind the scenes, the human being, the one that's spending hours, you know, working on the over and over kind of thing and all these fun things. And also just having 
fun because there are so many times where people re- say, you know, you need to realize it was a job, but there was still fun being had because you're creative people creating. So there was always fun things. Exactly. So let's rewind back. Keenan from Ireland sent in a letter of love going, I followed Brad for quite some time. I think he is awesome. I go through all these different credits and learn so many things. I always wanted to know, how did Brad actually get started? And can you talk about what the first jobs he had was? I'm interested to see where he started from now knowing where he's been. Nice. Well, nice hearing from you, Keenan. Uh, I'm not sure if you've been to one of my events or not, but we've been to Dublin a couple of times and uh, absolutely gorgeous country. I, I, I need to go back to Ireland, hopefully in 2024. How did I get started? First job. I'll even go back a teeny bit further. I was kind of a kind of a weird kid, I guess, in junior high, high school. I'm not a musician, but I was fascinated by music. My mom is a musician, um, very talented musician. And I tried. It just doesn't I have music in me, but it doesn't come out of my fingers or um, I, I do, I do have really good pitch, but, but I'm not a musician, but I'm, I always heard music different, I think, than other people did. It took me a while to figure this out. I would dissect songs in my head. I would hear the snare drum, mm. the kick drum and the bass line. And, uh, and I know a lot of, you know, especially engineers, musicians do that naturally. A lot of other people don't. And like my wife, who absolutely loves music, it took the two of us a while to kind of figure it out because I'd be like, you know, do you do you hear that snare reverb? And she'd be like, what are you talking about? And But it, that's always been natural to me. So there was an album, this is going to be so cliche, but an album called Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd that absolutely grabbed me and it shook me up and down. And uh, I thought, I don't know, there has to be people that, there have to be people that make these records and uh, I don't know how or what or where, but I have to learn how to do that. That's where I want to be. I've always been technical. And so long story short, um, I found a recording school in LA. It's long since gone out of business, but I'm grateful for them. It was a little school called Soundmasters, and they taught me the fundamentals. And I'll, I'm so, I can still picture myself sitting in that little classroom and I learned the basics of finding the fundamental frequency for an equalizer and what a compressor does and how it's different from a limiter. And I didn't even know what those things were, but I learned the basics. And then from there, part two is the second album. And, and I, I've always loved records, but uh, the second album that really grabbed me was, was Thriller. I was not a huge Michael Jackson fan. In fact, to this day, mm. I don't call myself a huge Michael Jackson fan, kind of out of respect for, for people that mm-hmm. are. And I studied Thriller like it was a final exam in, in a university. <laughs> I listened to it and listened to it. And there's a song called Lady in My Life. And I just, I couldn't hear that song enough. So I read the liner notes and it said, recorded and mixed by Bruce Swedeen at Westlake Studios. I opened up the phone book. Yeah, we had phone books back then. And, uh, <laughs> and I found Westlake and I drove down. And I applied for a job and they hired me. And I emptied trash cans. I cleaned toilets. I did whatever they wanted me to do. So I was what's called a runner. And mm-hmm. that's how it started. So I started at Westlake in late 1984, early 1985, somewhere in there. So then how did your view change from being, let's say, a kid listening to music then versus being at Westlake? How did your view on music change the older you got? That's a great question. I I was a kid in a candy store. I was absolutely (laughs) fascinated by the technology. 
studios have a mystique. I love recording studios and I've been blessed to be able to walk into so many studios around the world. There's just, there's, there's magic that happens. And there's, there's something in those buildings that we used to, you know, we used to talk about, you know, our jobs versus civilians, you know, the rest of the world, because there's things that happen in studios that are just so unique and so special. And when they happen, there's no place you'd rather be in the world. So how did that change? It, it got me even more excited. Mm. All of a sudden I'm, I'm learning, you know, from the best. I'm learning from, you know, people like, you know, Bruce Wadeen and Mick Kazowski, uh, John Robinson drums, the whole. And day after day, it's this parade of unbelievably skilled professionals. And I get to be there. And even if I'm just getting their cheeseburger and kind of standing <laughs> in the back of the room, hoping they don't notice me, you know, the first year or two, it's a lot of learning how to act in a recording studio. In fact, there's a course that I teach called Studio Etiquette on a Michael Jackson session. And I teach young engineers and young musicians just how to act, when to talk, when not to talk. And those are the things I learned real time, real fast. See, and that's something that I think not many of us, civilians, if you will, that are just the music buying people know even any of those things. Because you just assume there were people early on years ago when I started this going, James, I assumed... When somebody recorded a song, they sing from beginning to end, and it was done. Right. I thought that that's the way it was. And the song was created, written, all that, everything was set to go, and then it's on the radio kind of thing. Because people don't know. And so I've been saying, it does take a village. Even if there's just one person on the front of that album cover, if you look through that liner sheet, if you look through the liner notes, you'll see all sorts of other people. And even going what is that? There were times where I was like, what is a pro tool? Like what tools? And I was thinking like drill bits and stuff like that right. because I didn't know early on. Let me ask you this then, because we have a question from Frank in Argentina. James, I've been learning a lot about studio sessions from you. I still don't quite understand what an engineer does. I see people talking about them and I know they're important, but I still don't get it. Can you please explain? Great. Quite. What was the gentleman's name? I'm sorry. Frank from Argentina. Frank from Argentina. Greetings uh, to Frank in Argentina. What is an engineer? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's almost an unanswerable question, but I kind of broke it down into three personality types. In other words, one person that can do these three things. It's part technician. You, you really do have to have a technical mind. You have to understand microphones and how microphones sound different and preamps and signal flow and compression. You don't have to know it all in the beginning, but you should have you should have the type of mind that is fascinated by how can I make this sound just a little bit better? What technology can I use? It's part musician. You do have to have a musical ear. When you work with a singer, you have to be able to tell when they're, when they're on pitch, off pitch. And I'm going to sound a little bit old school through our conversation, but we always strove for perfection at the recording stage. We didn't wait mm. and do pitch correction and fix things later on. We never used pitch correction with Michael, not once. So you have, you do have to have a, you know, what I would say is a, a good set of ears to be able to hear, you know, what should be added to a chorus or not added. Quincy taught me something, Quincy Jones, that, that uh, I used literally within the past two weeks. We were working back then, we were working with a, a keyboard player. I, I honestly can't remember his name. I'm not trying to be mysterious. And it was just, in fact, it was Bruce. It was on a Quincy session, but it was Bruce Swedeen. Bruce Swedeen was my mentor. Bruce was the engineer. And the keyboard player was really, you know, just going crazy. It, it might have been Philip Gaines. It might have been uh, Boddicker. And Bruce said, put your right hand in your lap. 
and he made the keyboard player put his right hand in his lap and just play with his left hand. So he's just playing the lower register of the, of the keyboard, of the keys, and it opens up all this space for the guitars and the horns and everything else. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do that every song, but that's the kind of stuff that an engineer has to be able to hear and make on-the-spot decisions. The other one, kind of the what, what I would call the third part of the personality, is recording. It's very intimate. And a lot of times, you know, it's every artist is different. Every session is different. But the projects that I worked on, it was a really small group. And if you're going to work with someone like Michael Jackson or Barbara Streisand or whoever, it's a very intimate setting of an engineer and a vocalist making eye contact through a piece of glass. And so I, I, I just made some little scribbles here about, you know, it's a, it, you've got to be a trusted friend. You've almost got to be a therapist. You've got to be an encourager. You want to avoid distractions. And if there's one thing I really try and teach, it's for a vocalist, and, and forgive me if I sound old again, but especially female vocalists can be very intimidated. And when you go out there and stand behind a mic all by yourself, and it's just you and the microphone, there better not be people in the control room that are snickering and checking mm-hmm. Instagram and, you know, you're going to, you're losing an opportunity. So we would throw everybody out. I mean, our, our sessions were always really small anyway, but it's a very intimate setting where we want Michael to be as comfortable as possible um, or whoever the singer might be. And you've got to carry him through the session. You've got to encourage him. Hey, I think you could have done that a little bit better. I think you missed a note there. Let's go back and catch that again. That was great. And so it's a tech musician and just kind of encourager uh, is kind of the best way I could divide it up. Long answer to your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. But what you what you just said makes sense because there are so many different aspects to this. It's not just one simple thing. It's trying to balance all these in an environment that allows the performer, if you will, to come out, to sing, to be able to be creative because not everything that comes out is the best thing ever. You know, you try things and it doesn't. One of the other questions that I had, and it was from Doug. I'll in, keep this one a little bit short. <laughs> it was Doug in Detroit. His was his was a longer question, but his basically, and he, he said, you can condense. I was like, perfect. He basically said, how do you handle being somebody who's helping out an artist and not being a yes man and not being scared about losing your job if you speak up? How do you manage those things as a newer person in a room, not even just new to a studio, but a newer person in that room? It's a good question. I was so fortunate. I mean, I was thrown in with the best of the best at a really young age. And they they would, you know, they would throw us on different sessions. True professionals want truth. They want truthful feedback. Um, you're working as a team to build something cool. I don't ever remember being on a session where you know, we're nodding and saying, oh, wow, that's great. And, and it's not. I mean, there, there's, if you're going to be an engineer and, and a real engineer with a capital E, um, you have to own the session and the engineer ultimately needs to be in charge, at least of how the, what's being recorded sounds. If somebody is not delivering the product that you're trying, trying to capture or things are going off the rails a little bit, I think it's the engineer's responsibility to reel it back in. And, uh, it's, and sometimes you do have to be a little bit firm. I'm, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but if you're working with professionals, it really should be fun. It should be a very positive environment. 
if if the person's just not not every not every engineer is right for every artist i mean there's so many different styles and if it's if it's like this is not the session for me you might just have to take a pass on it and and find the artist that you really gel with see i like this because i think what's important is just because you're put in that studio doesn't mean that the energy is going to automatically be there it does not mean that everything all the stars are going to align so many people have sent in you know questions like how do you make yourself show that you're valuable to being in there. We've had people talk about recording studios, whether it was with Janet, Bjork, Madonna, where sometimes it's just like, clear the room, just these people, the mic is set, let's just have them go. Others, it's like, we're going to do this fun song. We want Janet wants her dancers in here and, and a whole different situation. So, <laughs> that's not that's not Michael's style. But okay. <laughs> just another way that those Jaxes are vastly different people. Absolutely. <laughs> Hopping out for a quick second, if you haven't listened to the other episodes on the original doll, just scroll through the list. You'll see so many different producers, songwriters, background vocalists, dancers, and more. And don't forget to follow me on your preferred streaming platform, Apple Podcast and Spotify. Don't forget to like and rate and tell your friends about it. Now back to the show. How do you see for any young creative, anybody in the studio, how do they make sure that they're feeling valued in there? And I'm not saying like they have the final say in this, I'm doing my job, but maybe my job right now is just sitting there and listening for six hours where they say, don't move. How do you handle that? I mean, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, kind of what I mentioned, studio etiquette. It's kind of a learned trait. I mean, not everybody. Yeah, you do have to know when to talk and when not to talk. If your personality is such that you just have to talk constantly, that's going to be rough in a studio. There's also, there's kind of a fine line between confidence and cockiness. You need to be confident. You need to be, you know, make everyone feel that you know how to do your job without being cocky and condescending. And it's just, it's it's so different because I come at it. I mean, I, I learned this stuff on 24 track analog tape and now a lot of projects are made, you know, on a laptop in a bedroom, basically. So it really is a different world. So I always tell people I'm coming at it with a little bit of a dated perspective, but we made some awfully good records in the, the methods that we did. Mm-hmm. This is this is amazing. And the crazy thing is how technology has changed through the years and even recently. So when you go back and there are people that I talk to that are like, we had tapes, we had dad tapes, we had this, we had that. They're like, now it's here's a file, send. Things like that change. But I think it's kind of fun to hear how technology changes because at the time of making, whether it's cassettes or vinyl, how different that recording process was in at the height of that, to your point, versus now streaming. Like, you can now make a song. You and I could make a song. It would not be great if I was involved, but we can make a song today and theoretically release it, you know, in the next week. There's oh, yeah. that yeah. There's that downtime. Many people were asking how exactly, because we know, and we're going to talk about the events that you do, the workshops that you do with Michael Jackson. Let's rewind back. How did you become a part of that group specifically? And knowing that you knew Thriller, knowing that you were familiar with it, for you, how different is it from going, you get included in like this Michael world? How different is it from you from being just a listener of the music to then being at work? Well, let me, let me, uh, I'll even, 
I might answer it a little different way than you're expecting, but let me tell you about how I first met Mike. I was literally a runner at Westlake Studios, you know, cleaning toilets, filling the Coke machine. And Michael, I don't know if I was there, you know, your brain plays tricks with you as you, uh, you know, put a few few laps on the uh, on the track. <laughs> it, it was within probably two to three months after I got my job at Westlake. And, and to be clear, I did not work at Westlake specifically to target working with Michael Jackson. I just wanted to be at a world-class studio. I was told that uh, Michael was going to be starting a project called Captain EO. And so Captain EO was recorded and mixed in Westlake Studio A on Beverly Boulevard in LA. I, it's funny. People are like, what was it like the first time you met Michael? I, I don't remember. I mean, I remember all of a sudden he was just there. He'd come, he'd drive himself to the studio. He'd come in the back door and he'd go in and work with Matt Forger and Chris Carell. And we just, he was Michael. I mean, he was, I knew he was Michael Jackson who had just finished the victory tour, but he was also just Michael wearing corduroy pants and long sleeve shirts. And that's how we met. I kind of made him laugh. He made me laugh. I mean, it's a really small building. If you went to Westlake, you'd be amazed how tiny it is. It's two little studios and a hallway and a lounge and a kitchen. That's about it. So you're going to bump into people all the time. And if he's got the whole building booked, it's just him. Right off the bat, it was, it was very comfortable. And then being able to go in and watch Matt work and listen to Michael sing and kind of see these things come to life before my eyes was amazing. I mean, it was just jaw dropping because on the one hand, yeah, that's Michael who I just, you know, made hot tea for. And on the other <laughs> hand, now he's singing another part of me. And and it was it was amazing. Kind of going along with this is at what part did your job change from being the hmm. runner? All right. So I have to kind of tell this just a little bit carefully. Michael and I really did get along really well. We were not best friends. We weren't running around the clubs. I mean, he wasn't teaching me to dance or anything like that. But he likes to keep a pretty tight group. So when they when we finished Captain EO, he was going to start a project called The Bad Album. So they actually built a whole studio specifically for Bruce Swedeen to do The Bad Album with Michael. It was a different location than the Thriller, uh, Studio A, but it was still part of the Westlake uh, recording group, about three miles away. By now, I'd kind of worked my way up through the ranks at Westlake a little bit, and I was assisting a lot of sessions, a lot of Taco Bell and Mac Tonight or McDonald's and uh, a lot of jingles and different things like that. So it came time to start the Bad Album. We didn't call it the Bad Album. We just called it the project. Michael moved into Studio D, and it was very limited. Studio, it was called a, a closed session. What that means is nobody is allowed in there. No, no vacuum cleaners, no tours, no salespeople, nothing. It's like blue tape on the doors, do not enter. But they let me. And they said, you know, Brad's really the only... There was an assistant by the name of Craig Johnson. Craig and I are still friends. So he was Bruce's assistant. And then they let me go in anytime I wasn't working. And I did ask, you know, Bruce basically said, Brad, anytime you want to come in, you're welcome. So I'd finish my, you know, my sessions down in Studio C and go running into Studio D and hang out and watch Michael sing Man in the Mirror and Smooth Criminal. And it was amazing. So by then I'd built a pretty solid trust. And Michael knew that I wasn't going to hurt him. I wasn't going to steal. I wasn't going to go talk to a tabloid. And Michael did like, again, I hope I'm not repeating myself, but he, among other people, he liked having me around. And he actually started having me do other projects. He started having me work on music systems up at Neverland while we were recording the Bad Album. And so it became clear that he liked having me on the team. 
And so over time, Craig went off and started working on his own projects. And then I became Bruce's technical director. And then I was pretty much locked into the team for, <laughs> I signed my life away for, for many, many years. <laughs> now, what is the technical director? What does a technical director it's a, do? It's a made up word. Um, I mean, it's not. I, <laughs> I am very technical. When you do an album like the Bad Album or the Dangerous Album, there's a lot of technology. And there, on Dangerous, we had sometimes five or six recording studios all going at the same time. On History, it just went crazy. That was a whole different level. I, I was the one who would go to the studios first. I would do everything from align the tape machines to make the studio ready for Michael. We'd build him a lounge. We would sometimes change the locks. We would have meetings with his security team and the studio security. It was everything. I mean, it was uh, getting the right microphone, you know, set up for Bruce. Over time, I would I would tend to follow Michael around, meaning if Michael was going to be working on an album like Dangerous, we had three different production teams. We had Bruce Switty and Bill Betrell and Teddy Riley. And I would tend to kind of follow Michael around to a certain extent just to make sure if he's going to do vocals. I want the vocals that he's getting for Teddy mm. to be very reminiscent to the vocals that we're doing with Bruce. And so we would make sure that, you know, we had the same microphones, just, you know, stay out of the way and yet in the way as much as possible. And then I'd get pulled into a bunch of demos. Michael might want me to stay at night and keep recording. So I was recording with him. I was recording with Bill Betrell. So the job, it's a job that doesn't really have a clear description, but I wore a lot of hats. And then booking Absolutely. musicians and booking studios. And uh, so, yeah, over time, it it became kind of a monster of a of a of a job. Well, and that's one of those things where I think more and more people realize, oh, wait, there aren't just musicians sitting in another room that you have right. to book the talent, that you have to get the strings need to come in or so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. that's something where not only is it the talent in that room, but also the talent that's going to be playing on these albums. You need to make sure that they're there on time doing whatever they need to do. Make sure you get the right thing. We had a question from Jackie from Canada. Hi, Jackie. She says, can you please ask, why do albums for MJ take so long? It seems like it takes forever for everything to come together. I feel like he could make an album one day and release it the next day. I wish it were that easy. Um, <laughs> you, you go back to the producer to a certain extent. I don't know how long it took off the wall. I was... Um, I was just a kid. Thriller took, depending on who you believe, it took about eight weeks, something like that. And that's true. I mean, Matt Forge and I are really good friends, but they really knocked Thriller out fast. Eight, 10 weeks-ish. It's crazy. Quincy was only contracted to work with Michael for three three projects, Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad. So by the time Bad came around, and, and there was no bad blood. I don't care what anybody says. Quincy and Michael did not have some big knockdown drag out fight. It was time for Quincy had fulfilled his contract. Quincy is old school, works fast. I mean, fast. And I mean, we'd have sometimes three musicians come and go doing overdubs in a day, just in, out, in, out. And they were long days. He worked wow. really hard. Rod Temperton was just remarkably driven. And when when Michael was a bit more on his own, things did slow down a little bit. Not a lot. Uh, Michael's still very driven, but now Michael wanted to do more songs and more ideas. And let's change this song. Let's redo this song. Let's change the tempo on this and do it again. Let's try this musician. Let's try that musician. So on a project like Dangerous, we used to call it Decade, but, but it uh, came out as Dangerous, there were 
we probably worked on approximately 60 or 70 songs, something like that. Not finished. A lot of them don't even have vocals, but just a lot of groove ideas. And then the, the good ones just kind of sink to the top. But between Michael and Bruce, Teddy, Bill, they're all perfectionists. You know, let's let's make it better. Let's make it better. Let's make it bigger. Let's get this person in. It's hard to explain why a project like that, Dangerous, probably took something like 20 months, 22 months, something like that. Wow. I know it doesn't really make sense, but when you're neck deep in it, it's just work and it's long days and you're exhausted. And we would work, you know, usually five, six days a week, usually five, we usually took the weekends off, but it was real work. I mean, it was just rooms. Well, I don't want to exaggerate, but hundreds of tapes and we were still, it was still tape. So everything from prepping tape, work tapes, everything takes time. And then studios break, you know, you've got a, you know, channel 77 has a crackle on it. Well, we got to stop the session for a minute and figure that out. So things never go as quickly as you would like. And again, going back to Michael's perfectionism, he just, he wanted, Michael's not going to sing the vocal once, he's going to sing it 44 times. And uh, and they're all going to be amazing. All that stuff takes time. Well, and the funny thing is us, and I keep saying civilians as, as me, just the music listener. I, I can't even tell the difference between A, B, C, D, E, F, G, because I don't have that ear. Other people would be like, no, this is different. Right. For us, we're just excited to hear these things. But right. it, there's such an intricacy in the decisions that were made. And I remember uh, a few years ago, I was interviewing some Britney Spears songwriters and producers, and they were like, we wanted a song with that Jackson stutter. And nobody could figure out like how to do that Jack. And they were like the Jackson stutter. And it was so funny because when I heard the song that, that ended up being released that they did, I was like, I get it. And they said, it's so difficult. You're a half a step, but you're a step behind. Like, they're like, it doesn't make sense. And we're not <laughs> at that MJ level, but that's something that's amazing. The question actually, we had Alice from France, James Original Doll, I learned so much from you about vocal comping. What Michael Jackson song or any artist he worked with took the longest to get down right? <laughs> so Michael or anybody? Um, well, it'd be Michael, far and away. Hopping out for a quick second to remind you, if you're enjoying this conversation, go ahead and rate this on Apple Podcast and Spotify and tell your friends. That's the way we get so many new ears on all of these great stories and these icons themselves. Now back to the show. James Original Doll, I learned so much from you about vocal comping. What Michael Jackson song or any artist he worked with took the longest to get down right? <laughs> so Michael or anybody? Um, well, it'd be Michael far and away. So actually I did a TikTok. It's on TikTok and I think Facebook about this. Oh, and now you can put your TikTok name out here. What's your yeah, TikTok? In, in, in the studio with MJ. So if you go back and, you know, search for jam or vocal comp or something, it'll probably pop up on the dangerous album. We did a song called jam and, uh, Bruce Swedeen was producing it and it got ridiculously big, meaning it was so tracks and more tracks and more tracks and more tracks. So when Michael finally went to sing the lead vocal, there's kind of, there's sort of what I call three, three types of vocals. There's the scratch vocal, background vocals, and lead vocal. And we would usually wait to do the lead vocal until the very end, because the scratch vocal is just kind of a, a melody, just enough to, uh, you know, give the musicians an idea where Michael's going to go. Um, but it's not a polished vocal by any means. So we had the background vocals done and Michael was going to go to do the lead vocal. 
And there was a whole process of getting him ready for vocals. I mean, he would warm up for two hours, literally two hours before he was going to sing. And we'd have to have all the lights off. And we had, I had a heater for him and I'd make hot water for him. And, and it was a whole, a whole thing. And so when, but when he starts to sing, man, he's, he's a machine. It's just, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Okay. You like that one? Let's do it again. I just want you to recognize me in the tempo. You can't hurt me. I found peace within my Go with it. Go with it. Jam. It ain't, it ain't too much. It ain't too much. It ain't too much for me. They're all amazing. And on jam, I think we got up to about 40 44 lead vocal takes, something like that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and they're all remarkable. They're all, they're all just great. But then we do, it was, was it Alice in Canada? Jackie Canada. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Alice and Jackie. So Alice in, 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 uh, in France, we would do what's called vocal comping. What that means is now you're going to go back and listen phrase by phrase, nation to nation, all the world must come together. Okay. So nation to nation. Okay. I like ne on track 17. I like shun on track 31. I like two on track 14 for real. And now sometimes, you know, nation to nation might be one clean take where we use just track 17. Then we'd go to track mm. 27 or whatever. So we had full spreadsheets. And so I, I did a whole video about this where you can actually see Michael do some of the comping. Go to my social media, you'll find it. And it, it was arduous. I mean, it's it's boring. You know, it, it sounds fun, but it's hours of listening to phrase after phrase after phrase 44 times. And, and Michael was brilliant at it. And, and Bruce Wadeen really uh, was the king of kind of what I call old school comping, where he's literally moving the faders track 22 to track 19 to track 41 to track six. Um, and he was amazing at it. So we would create what I respectfully call a perfect Frankenstein vocal where it's all Michael. It is, you're hearing Michael mm -hmm. through the whole song you just don't realize that you're hearing probably four or 500 vocal switches um, between words, between phrases, no pitch correction. We didn't do anything electronic. You're still hearing Michael, but you're hearing all these different uh, tracks of Michael. Now that's unique to Bruce. Bruce was very particular about that style. Someone like Bill Bottrell, who did black or white and who is it and uh, give in to me, Bill is never going to do that. Bill wants to capture a whole vocal or as mm. much of a vocal as possible and keep it as real and live as possible. So it's two very different styles and most people probably can't hear the difference, but, um, but in terms of how the one, the song with the most vocal comps that I worked on jam far and away. That's crazy. And the funny thing is so many people would message me just in general going, wait, it must be an absolute joy hearing the song. I go, you know, the song completed. You don't know what it was like the beginning. You don't know. Cause there were so many times where people would say, we only had like a part of a chorus and part of a hook and that was it. So they're, right. they're like listening to this. They're like, we didn't have the full song where you're like, I'm going to enjoy and just play it all the way through. It's like, no, you're just listening to the first you know, one and a half seconds and working on that part over and over. Right. Let me ask you this then. How do you then in this studio hearing that over and over, how do you control alt delete that out of your mind? How do you just clear <laughs> that out? Insane. <laughs> uh, I, I should have, I, I joked right in the middle of that. How, how do I, how do you just, 
cope with that or go yeah how do you deal because it's how are you not haunted by nation 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 you know what i mean mean, we 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 would do drum we would do drum sounds and uh michael usually wasn't there for these and then my wife would call me in the middle of it and bruce would be trying to you know get a snare sound and it was just and she'd be like how can you stand it and i'm like i can't but you know but but it's it's part of the job And, and these guys are perfectionists it it really is exhausting and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it's a, no, not at all. At yep. the end of it, you're just like, man, I was part of a, a team that did something really cool there. Yeah. The concentration that it takes, especially for vocal comping. And I even mean that for engineers now. I mean, I'm good friends with Brian Vibert's um, seven time Grammy winner. And uh, Brian and I have talked about comping and it really is exhausting. I mean, at some point, you just have to get up from the console and go get a cup of coffee and, you know, go for a walk, go hear a bird sing or something <laughs> you do. Cause you'll literally go insane. Um, mm-hmm. Then you come back and you keep doing it. I mean, it, it's what you're being paid to do. I once told somebody when they said about comping, they go, it's it. I feel like it can't be that difficult, like to hear it over and over. So I said, have you ever had a record player skip over and over, go to the same spot? Yeah, it's annoying. <laughs> I go, that you're not listening to that 150 times. You're listening to that maybe two times. Oh, never mind. I get it. I'm like, that's all it is. I'm not yeah. saying it's in that extreme way, but the, uh, the repetitive sound, sometimes you just need to clear it out. So yep. then there are so many other questions that we have about just different songs and everything. But I want to ask you this. Looking back on all of the songs that you were you were in the room for which song would you say out of everything which song would you say (laughs) (laughs) well no which maybe not which song would you say evolved changed the least from the 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 embryonic stage to the released Mm. and which one change which one is like it's a complete juxtaposition right there where it's like if you heard the original what we started with to what we got it's totally Mm -hmm. different so which one stayed faithful to kind of that original well, I mean, idea? Well, there's a whole story I tell about Give In To Me, and I, I don't want to give too much of it away. Give In To Me stayed exactly the same, right down to the, the original drum sounds. Wow. It is intentionally raw and real. And uh, so that that didn't change. I mean, outside of just adding, you know, some synths and a few things, uh, that's it. And, and, and guitars, obviously. So in terms of changing the least, uh, you know, given to me comes to mind right away, changing the most. I mean, everybody goes bananas over the whole smooth criminal Chicago, all the different versions. And even I don't know all of them, but they're all first cousins of each other. So it really didn't change that much. Trying to think of a song where we really changed the tempo. Early version of the early versions of "Someone Put Your Hand Out" are absolutely gorgeous, and, and I actually kind of prefer them to the final release, mm-hmm. just because I I do like the songs where they're a little more raw. Michael's vocal is not not comped; it's just it's just a scratch vocal. Oh, I know the title track "Dangerous." Um, the original version of "Dangerous" was a Bill Betrell track. And had a, a really cool, really cool vibe to it. I think it's been released. I think it was on one of the... Uh, like the anniversary editions? I think so. I mean, it's probably not that different. But for me, uh, Dangerous changed quite a bit. Um, I think Streetwalker uh, changed a fair... Streetwalker is one of my favorites. I, I like the grittier songs that, that Michael did. But I don't remember like a ballad. You know, we didn't we didn't take a song like uh, Gone Too Soon and turn it into a dance mix or anything like that. I mean, that wasn't really <laughs> our, we, we didn't really do stuff. Maybe, maybe after Michael went home, we might do something like that, but not, not that's going to be released. 
You're like, here's the Donna Summer Giorgio Marauder one. I get when Michael's saying gone too soon. I I'd been I'd been with him now for about five years. Well, yeah, well, probably you know, 90, 91, something like that. And he was gonna sing Gone Too Soon. And with all with all due respect, I just I don't like the song. It's it's way too syrupy and uh, but but it was important to him. And so we had all the lights off, and it was just me and Bruce in the control room and Michael out in the studio. And I'd been there for countless vocals. I mean, not to the point where I was bored, but I was very comfortable. It was just fun to sit back and watch Michael sing. He, he leans into the microphone. He's like, Bruce, can you come out here for a minute? And Bruce goes out. And Bruce is this great big Swedish guy. And he's just got no no tact whatsoever. Bruce comes back in the control room. I, I knew that it was about me. And Bruce comes back in and goes, Michael wants you to get out of here. And I'm like, what did I do? He goes, he just doesn't want you in here for this one. And I, and I get it. It's a very sad song. And he, he just, and not that I would do anything stupid, but yeah, I got kicked out. So that's life, life goes on. <laughs> like, it's like the principal is like not directly telling you. They're telling the security, like, exactly. take him out. Yeah. I love it. I if love Michael it. So- didn't, if Michael didn't like somebody, I mean, if a musician came in and this happened a fair bit and you don't want to smother Michael. You give him his space. You, you know, he's, he's like a cat. You can't go up and grab a cat. You know, you, you got to let the cat warm up to you. And if Michael didn't like, if it just didn't gel, Michael would just sort of disappear out the back door or go up to his lounge or something. And then we'd have to tell the musician, hey, thanks for stopping by. Nice meeting you. And uh, you're never going to hear from us ever again. It's like what old, like now it's ghosting when you go somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry if any musicians that we worked with just heard that. I I deeply apologize. I was there. I was the <laughs> one that was making the beats for all these songs. Um, <laughs> no, but the the crazy thing is like hearing all these these stories because something that I think has been amazing that the listeners have kind of understood is you could work on 50, 60 different songs and for any number of reasons, 90% of them could be scrapped. The other thing is, I remember early on, like, you know, when when Rhythm Nation came out and Michael Michael was like talking about it, he's like, oof, that Rhythm Nation where he was just like, and everyone is like, what's going to happen next? What is going to happen next? And then all of a sudden it's like, right. how is he impacted? Because no matter what, both of them, you know, always talked about that there was love for the family, but they're still, they're competitive Absolutely. human beings. And so then let me ask you, how did it change from the direction or here is the mission statement of this new project we're going to work on what were those initial this is what we're looking at for what would be the bad album or decade or you know what i mean like were there any of those like hey we want to now go this way when teddy riley comes in it's clearly like going this way versus what was going on before but what were some of those directives Mm -hmm. that might have changed over the years of working with him in the studio so i'm always honest you know there were um I, I wasn't in Michael's lounge, you know, when he's having private meetings with Teddy and Bruce and things like that. My hunch would be, I mean, there was never a big sit down meeting, you know, this is how this album is going to go. Michael just wants as many number one songs as possible. He wants an album as the kids say, that's going to slap and um, top to bottom. It just needs to hit hard, hit emotions, hit the dance floor, hit everything. So I mean, like, like when, when we started decade decade, wasn't even supposed to be a full album. It was just supposed to be three or four new songs and a best of, 
And it just got to be so good that we we ditched the best of part of that. Dangerous to me is such a unique album because it's kind of three albums in one. The three sonic styles or production styles are so different between Teddy's New Jack Swing, you know, urban sound, Bill's um, rock and roll, almost sometimes Southern rock, and uh, and Bruce's, you know, painting a 747 with a Q-tip, you know, on songs like Heal the World and uh, and gone too soon they're just remarkable works of art and for those three styles to fit on the same album to me is what makes that album so special so we didn't have a meeting at the beginning where michael said i want an album that has three very different styles mm-hmm. and we couldn't have foreseen where it was going to go he just wanted the best songs and the most unique sounds anyone has ever heard and this is the part that i love going from quincy three albums were working together then it's okay now i'm going to be start in i forgot which uh guest i've had on oh lauren christie she said and there's a point where an yeah. artist is like i'm mm-hmm. a bumblebee i want to check out the new flowers i want to go check out it has nothing to do with what it is but i want to see what else is out there and see what else we can do and it's also i feel like in general that putting yourself into a new territory with the new producer also has that scared i need to try this because i'm not following the formulaic right. i'm going to work with this producer a every single time so then let me ask you this because you brought up heal the world fernando from the philippines james rodriguez my favorite songs forever are bohemian rhapsody by queen and mj's heal the world can you brad ask brad how long it took there couldn't, there couldn't be two more different songs but okay well but this is i listened to one because of my dad one because of my mom can you talk about making heal the world so that's where connection comes right. in no and i and, and forgive me tell me tell me his name again it is fernando from the philippines fernando i no no for, forgive any any undue snickering it wasn't towards you people that know me know that i've talked about heal the world um ad nauseum and uh, I hated that song, just hated it. It's just not my, it's not my vibe at all. It's a Bruce Woodin song. It's Bruce and Michael. It's gorgeous. It's, it's got every, I mean, the orchestration on it, the LA Philharmonic, it, it just gets bigger and bigger. Uh, Michael Boddicker on synths. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful song. It's just not, it's not my, my cup of tea in terms of, uh, how 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 was it recorded? I think we started it when I was two years old, and we finished it just yesterday. Um, <laughs> it took forever. It was we it'd be it'd be like at the end of a day, and I'm getting really tired. You know, it's like you know seven thirty at night, and I'm kind of thinking a couple more hours, and I could go home. And Bruce would look at me, and he'd say, you know, put up put up heal the world. And I'm, so let me explain when, when Bruce says those words, put up, heal the world, five words, what that entails. That means Bruce is going to go make a cup of coffee and uh, go call his wife. And I have to zero an 80 input console and I have to pull out Polaroid pictures of the last time we mixed heal the world four days Goodness. ago. <laughs> and I would, and it would take me about an hour and I'd have to, I got it down there. I could do it in about an hour and I'd have to match um, the the multi-tracks playing with the mix that Bruce did four days ago. And it's it's exhausting. And Bruce, and he loved that song. And so we would mix it and mix it and mix it. And it finally got to a point where, of course, I have a sense of humor and I'm not going to 
be a jerk, you know, with Michael Jackson. This song sucks. I mean, I'm never going to do that. But it, it, it was probably written all over my face. It's just like, I can't believe we're working on Heal the World again. And this is an absolutely true story. It's a story that I, I tell in recording schools. We were mixing Heal the World. It's a big song. It's a bit, everything about it is big. Bruce was, we, we got to one of the, kind of one of the turnarounds in the chorus. Bruce stopped the tape. And this is during the mix, okay? So I, I describe albums as happening in three sections, um, tracking, overdubs, and mixing. And mixing is kind of like dessert in a meal. You, when, you're, when you're eating dessert, you don't go back and order, you know, more escargot. That, that ship sailed. <laughs> We're mixing Heal the World. Studio, all the microphones are put away. We've been working on this project for 20 months or whatever. And I'm thinking, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I might actually get to have a life again. And Bruce stops the tape and he says, something's missing. And I said, no, no, it's all here. He goes, no, no, we need, we need one or something missing on this song. And long story short, he decided that the tom fills, the, the drum fills were not punchy enough. The original drums on that song uh, were from an MPC 60, 60, a drum machine. So in the middle of mixing Heal the World, we brought in a drummer, John Robinson, and it took a whole day, took the better part of a day, uh, set up all, set up his drums, set up the mics, set up the blankets, the whole thing. We recorded those tom fills, bum, 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 in the choruses for Heal the World. Took a, set the project back probably a full day. And when I play it My back goodness. for students and I'll say, here's the song without the Tom fills and here's the song with the Tom fills. It's remarkable. I mean, even now I literally get goosebumps talking about it because Bruce was right. And even though I do clown on that song a little bit, <laughs> it's a masterpiece. And it really took me years, you know, doing these events and listening to that song and telling these stories. I don't casually listen to heal the world. I'm not going to pop it in and give it a listen this evening. But I have so much respect for Bruce and for not cutting any corners. So Heal the World jumps out at me far and away as uh, it's a very special song in that uh, I wanted it to be done, but it wasn't done. And Bruce had to put one cherry on top to make it perfect. Hopping out, don't forget to join me on Instagram, the.original.doll. And if you want to go old school, theoriginaldoll.com. If you want to join our community, go to patreon.com through the main website. Or purchase some of the merchandise. Because of you, the supporters, Patreon supporters, the people who purchase the merchandise, you all are keeping this, the original doll with James Rodriguez, iconography, up and running. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. How did your view of making an album change after, I mean, being involved in all these albums and then being huge successes globally and critically acclaimed, how did your view of music change at that point than from when you first started? Well, let me give you an example. I mean, I was still on staff. I was still paid by the recording studio. I wasn't, you know, they, they weren't dumping a, a, a freight train full of, you know, cash into my backyard. I mean, I was, you know, I've, I've, I was working for a living. So I'd finish an album like Heal the, like, a, like Heal, the, the Heal the World, the album. Um, I'd finish an album like Dangerous. By the way, that and is Michael saying, it'll be forever stuck in your head now. It'll, my it'll song is forever. great. <laughs> I'd, I'd finish an album like, like dangerous and you know and bruce and and uh you know they're they're going to the caribbean michael's going on tour and and i got to keep working and so then i'd get 
tossed in and I'm not going to man, I'm not going to name any names because that's not cool, but I'd be put onto other projects where the quality was nowhere near what I was mm. used to. And that would be frustrating. I mean, I would just have to sit there and just watch people that are not as talented or driven as Michael Jackson do the best they could. But comparatively, it was just, it was just painful. Not, not all. I mean, no, I did work with some really cool people. So, you know, in terms of how my, my views change, I mean, you, you know, you, you do become very critical and uh, I hope in a good way, but I was just so used to Michael's style of working and, and the quality that he produced, you know, you do listen to some other people's work and it's like, well, that's, that's nice. Nowhere near what, what we've been working on, but, but you can't, you can't say that, but it, it does, it builds you a tremendous respect for working with the team that, that we worked with. See, I love this. Now we have questions because so many people, so you were there for so many of these albums and People, we had people asking because we have the Jan fam. We have Janet Jackson fans that are also lovers of this and learning. There were people asking about Scream. The Janet Jackson fans have always reached out to me and say, James, can you please talk about Scream a bit? Scream is something because it was such an iconic moment of two superstars right there mm -hmm. that were brother and sister that were making a song. And the leak happened, all this stuff, and it was insane. But there were so many people that thought this song is, it should be in like the upper echelon of songs because of what it was able to do sonically, what it did and how it moved both of them really in a different direction in a good way. So we have from Tony in Greece, James, can you ask Brad to talk about making Scream? It is my favorite song. I think Jimmy Jam said that MJ re-recorded his vocals after her Janet's. Is that true? Denise from South Africa, James Original Doll, Scream is such a huge moment in music. Can you ask Brett, is that something that is very nervous being in the studio or hearing this song's going to get released, knowing how big it was going to be? Was there a lot of confidential signed sign documents? Well, <laughs> which makes sense because at the time people were trying to figure out what is happening. Yeah, NDAs. I, I used to be the one that go around and make people sign the NDAs. So that's kind of <laughs> funny. First of all, shout out to you for having fans in South Africa and Greece and all over the place. That's awesome, man. I'm, that's I, mean, I, I love this type of a format where you can literally reach the world. And uh, I, I think that's fantastic. So nice job. So Scream was on the History Project. History was a very different kind of album. And you, you people may or may not resonate with this answer, but and I'll, I'll try and make it brief. We, we did Scream. We did uh, the album in New York. All the other M MJ projects happened in, in L.A. And we moved and why to New was York. that? Uh, the earthquake, the 94 quake. Uh, Michael really was very scared during that earthquake. And we packed the whole team up and about 12, 14 of us went to New York for the next 15 months. And we worked on this project. The other kind of oddities, unfortunate things with this album where Michael had been through a pretty rough time. 94 was, you know, I think, I think it was good for him to be back in the studio. And we, we welcomed him with open arms and had just an absolute blast with him. Um, it was a very big project. There were times when we had 10 or 12 studios running around the country. So we're shipping tapes to to Atlanta, to Minneapolis, to LA, to uh, Virginia Beach, and and all over New York. 
And so, and I hope this isn't disappointing, but my one-on-one time with Michael was a little bit less. Michael was all over the place and I, I stayed pretty much in New York, but Janet did come to New York. In fact, I'll tell you a quick little side Janet story. Janet came to New York and she did the Janet tour in 94 and she was at Radio City Musical. And so Michael came in, he's like, you guys want to go see my sister? And it's like, yeah. And <laughs> so they got us some tickets. And so I put on the coolest clothes that we had, which is pretty grim, <laughs> and went to Radio City Music Hall. And we're in the second to the back row. You ever been to Radio City? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great venue, but you're in the second to the back row. And I'm like, well, gee, nice of your sister to really, you know, set us up. <laughs> and Michael's in this stupid disguise. He 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 just he looks like he's homeless and he's got this baggy suit on or something. And I'm like, and he didn't go with us. I mean, there were a few of us that we were kind of in this row, and he was across the aisle from me. I think he was there with Taco and um and maybe Miko. And he's literally in the aisle dancing, and he's got this baggy suit on, and nobody really knew it was he. I don't know if they did know it was him or didn't know, but I'm sitting there watching him and watching Janet. And I'm like, this is actually kind of cool. You know, I get to watch Michael Jackson dance in the back row at Radio City um, Mm -hmm. while his sister's on stage. But getting back to recording scream, Janet came in and I was, I'm going to be honest. I wasn't there this day. Um, It's, it's a, there's just a lot of details to the story, but Brad Buxer tells me the story that, Janet and Michael, and I'm, I'm going to keep this, you know, PG rated. They they were going to do the, you know, stop effing with me. And Michael had really never dropped the F-bomb. I mean, Michael did not curse. And I'm being completely serious. He just didn't. So they were kind of getting their courage up a little bit. And Buxer walked by the, by, they were out in one of the ISO booths or something at Hit Factory. And they're like, you know, stop effing with me. Stop effing with me. You stop effing with me. And they're just screaming at each other. And Buxer said it was like this cathartic moment where the two of them were just letting out decades of rage. And it's like, okay, this is getting a little too real. So I, I truthfully, I was not there when the two of them sang together. I think Brian Vibberts was, and he said it was, it was just amazing. Fast forward to the end of the project. And now I'm going to show you what, what, uh, what kind of a prude I am. We're kind of, we're mixing scream. We were back in LA working at record at record one. And this was, for those of you that are over a certain age, you might remember this. This was during the whole Tipper Gore thing with putting uh, ratings on on albums and, you know, inappropriate, what, what was it? Um, parental advisory. Yeah, yes, thank you, parental advisory. Yeah, for, for people under the age of 30 or 35, they're going to have no <laughs> idea what we're talking about. But in 1995, it was kind of a big deal. And I, I pulled Michael into one of the, one, one of the uh, little lounges at Record One And I said, look, I go, forget about, you know, my opinions or whatever, but I don't know if anyone's telling you this, but if this Tipper Gore thing, I mean, if they put a sticker on your album, there are going to be a lot of grandmas in the Midwest. that are going to say, I'm not buying this for my granddaughter. Michael's using dirty words. He genuinely had no idea. 
I mean, it, it was as if, and not that it's my job to tell them that. And I, and I said, look, man, mm -hmm. do what you want to do. I at least want to be a voice that makes you aware that there could be repercussions. Well, they kept the F-bomb down pretty soft. And I think people got more upset about they don't care about us. And so obviously he didn't get the sticker, but but he was very naive about stuff like that. And, and it was really interesting. Happen up for a quick second. Once again, if you're a first time listener, thank you for coming here. If you're a returner, Thank you for coming back. Something that I've referred to over the many years that I've been doing this is whenever I've talked about one artist, let's say Janet Jackson, there are always those people out there that try to automatically compare her to another female artist. They try to take away the shine of this black artist. And I say, these artists have all made lanes for themselves. Michael Jackson, he made a lane for himself. When you look at all of those artists, those recording artists, those performers, let's just even make it as simple as the male artists. You have Usher, you have Pharrell, you have Bruno Mars. You have these artists that all talk about the influence, the deep impact that Michael Jackson had on them. And we can go and talk about Britney Spears, the Princess of Pop, who, as many of you know, I've interviewed songwriters and producers that worked on every album and even her former A&R, who was there for the signing and the developing of Britney Spears. There are so many times mentioned about Janet Jackson's impact and influence on Britney Spears. You can talk about Lady Gaga. You can talk about Rihanna. All of these artists talk about Janet Jackson's influence on them. So to say one is greater than the other, one had more impact than the other, makes no sense. Music art is subjective. If you want to say artist A had this many number one songs, and they had the most number one songs, well, that's just fact. But when we talk about the influence of these artists, it's subjective. If you grew up being a fan of Michael Jackson and being okay about Janet Jackson, chances are you might have seen firsthand the impact and the influence that Michael Jackson had on other artists, and vice versa for stop Janet Jackson. But it is interesting when we talk about Scream, many people say, oh, well, you know, specifically, it's very much a Michael Jackson song. Janet Jackson was just kind of the feature on there. Just, you know, it helped her career. That is not true. As a matter of fact, there's a sample in Scream from Janet Jackson's The Knowledge. And let's not forget that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Jam and Lewis, who worked extensively with Janet Jackson since the Control album, they were producers on this. And Jimmy Jam talks about the story where when he knew he was going to be working with Michael and Janet, he put together Sonics, some kind of tape, some sounds, and said to Janet, what do you think he will vibe with? And Jimmy Jam would play the Sonics that would ultimately lead to Scream and the Sonics that would ultimately lead to Janet Jackson's hit song, Runaway. What was interesting is Janet said, I know my brother, it's the one ultimately that would become Scream. It's got that loud, in-your-face, that rock sound. That sound that Michael Jackson kind of shines at. So ultimately, Scream would be created. And it had an impact, sales-wise, chart-wise. It would be Michael Jackson's first top five hit since 1992 with Remember the Time, which peaked at number three. So these two artists made lanes for themselves, but they also, in different interviews, you can see the influence that each sibling had on the other sibling. In addition, 
they were competitive. And we've heard interviews, we've heard collaborators of Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson talk about that. So when we talk about these artists, it comes down to this. If you were a day one fan of artist A and not so much artist B, chances are you'll say artist A had an impact because you were watching those interviews. You were watching all those references from other artists about your favorite artist and vice versa. So when it comes down to it, both of these artists made an impact that changed music. You can't take that away. Both of these artists being black in the United States really worked hard to make a name for themselves. So all that people do when they try to say, oh, artist A is better than artist B because they had a bigger influence, this and that, that's all on you. You decide. You can say what your favorite movie is. I can say it's not mine. It's okay. I don't yuck anyone's yum. The thing to remember is this. We would not have the artists, the performers we have today had it not been for that impact of Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson. Now back to my conversation with Brad and more about Scream on Patreon next week, theoriginaldial.com. Well, and something that, that we shouldn't overlook either is Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson always wanting to be number one sales out there Mm -hmm. having that and this is giving you know context for those who might not have been around then big box stores like walmart wouldn't sell anything that had that which meant that basically the biggest seller of music was not gonna play or not gonna have your music for sale which would impact because it would go to everywhere across the united states that distribution was there so that's why many people are like why were there edited ones not edited it's like edited so that it could be sent to the stores right. that refuse to sell something with that sticker on there and when i tell that story in europe i mean they just look at me like you know what are you from planet neptune i mean what what in the <laughs> world are you even talking about they said it was a moment in time you just have to understand that at that moment in time we we live in a country where everything has to be a big deal at some point. And at that moment in time, that was a big deal. And we all had to get revved up about it. So I, I, I certainly didn't come on with any sense of authority, but I just wanted to just mm-hmm. be at least a voice and say, if this happens, it could have a negative, Im- negative impact. And it didn't happen. Because you mentioned uh, they don't care about us. But in situations in general, looking forward, would they always say we're going to, have the edited version or sing an edited version instead of, do you know, or was it just pull it out or, you know what I mean? Because nowadays you have songs where it's like, let's say pink song, perfect, where it's called, and we can swear in here, like fucking perfect, where it's like. Yeah. I mean, on the projects I worked on, I mean, you know, Scream was the only one where, you know, I mean, the the rappers, I mean, they, they dropped their share of, uh, of uh, colorful phrases, you know, Michael, Michael Janet dropped the F-bomb and it was, buried pretty deep in the mix you you've got to kind of you know really listen for it or listen to that remix where it's just that exactly (laughs) but no we didn't i mean we knew there'd be a lot of remixes but no we definitely did not i think we were all the they don't care about us thing was just like what i mean michael doesn't have a a a racist or anti-semitic bone in his body and that was just like that's what you're going to be upset about, you know, instead of the kind of the point of the song. So no, I I don't recall any conversations of, you know, when we do this for, I mean, to the contrary, a song like black or white on the previous album, which has a 
pretty hard message right in the middle of it. I mean, it's it's very clear, and yet it's a fun, like Bill Bottrell says, a Southern rock song, which makes no sense at its core, but it works. And then Michael does the uh, the extended video for it, and 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 people, and again, uh, for people under a certain age, they're gonna have no idea the impact. An estimated seven hundred million people watched the world premiere of Black or White. And a lot of us remember where we were. And that just, that will never happen again, those kind of moments. And then Michael puts on, you know, the the tag at the end of him uh, turning into a panther and smashing windows and everything. And it was very powerful. I mean, it uh, it upset a lot of people and it started a lot of conversations. And if Michael was good at anything, it was, uh, let's, let's start a conversation. So then was there any, so because we know the Jacksons were always visual artists as well. When, when these songs were being made or being completed or anything, was there in his mind, oh, this is definitely going to be a video? You know, like, were there, because mm -hmm. hearing those things back, and I assume because you hear these stories of these great artists where they're singing a song and even thinking of choreography, where they're in their mind, they already think, what does that performance look like? So okay. were there any times where he or the creator, not the label or whoever was in there, was like, oh, this is definitely the contender for a single this is definitely a song we want to utilize um i'm i'm, I'm going to correct you on one thing I, just out of humor and respect the label was never allowed michael would not allow label people for real i mean it was a big deal we'd have little playback things where one one of the honchos might be allowed to come in here a couple things but we did not have label people sitting on the couch looking around that would that was a absolutely never happened. Michael was very busy and uh, very compartmentalized. When he's in the studio, he's working on studio stuff. But when he's upstairs in his lounge or someplace, he's got all kinds of other things he's working on. So yeah, I mean, there would be meetings upstairs with uh, Joe Pitka or whoever, you know, different video directors that, that might come in. Pit, I think Pitka was more on the Bad Album. So they'd be having those conversations, but it really wasn't part of what we were doing in the control room. He might share an idea or two with us, but not. And same thing as we got towards the end of any of the projects, we'd start working with the choreographers and the, uh, the band, you know, cause we didn't use, Michael didn't have a band, you know, we used studio musicians, um, a lot of the Toto guys. And uh, so we didn't really, and, and with, again, with all due respect to, uh, you know, Jennifer Batten and Sugarfoot and all those guys, they were his live band, but they didn't, we didn't really work with them in the studio. So towards the end of the project, we would start doing what's called tour prep. And mm. Michael would throw me into a different studio and start working with uh, the musical director, whether it be Greg Phelan Gaines or Brad Buxer and uh, the choreographers and the tour, you know, there might be the tour director, um, it might've been Kenny or, and, uh, and we would start changing the songs to work on tour. Um, mm -hmm. So all that stuff would be happening towards the end of the project because once that thing hits the shelves, Michael's gone. He's mm -hmm. off to Japan or Munich or wherever and kicking off the tour. 
I have interviewed so many different people who worked on tours with Kylie Minogue, the Spice Girls, Britney Spears, and more. Check out those interviews and you can find it scrolling through Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just go on through. Many people say, James, do I listen in order? The only time you have to listen in order to any of these episodes is when it says part one of an interview or part two. But you can just scroll through and check out those interviews with the people who were there with the tours, getting ready, prepped for the tours, the dancers, and more. Check it out, the original Dal with James Rodriguez, Iconography, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And while you're there, click follow so that you get notified right away. Back to the show. Because that was one of those things. This was still at a time, and it was for several decades where a single would be released prior to an album coming out. That there was, right. this is all ready to go. And even a majority of the people, like I talked to Steve Lunt when he was co-writing Shebop and Goonies Are Good Enough and everything with Cindy Lauper, where he said, you knew already what the first, second, possibly sure. third single was going to be, because then if they were going to manufacture it, they're manufacturing those things. What are these remixes going to be? So on and so forth. So in that time, let's just give an estimate. If an album that you worked on with, with Michael Jackson were to come out January 1st of, of the year, mm-hmm. during the time when you were doing this, when was usually like the cutoff time? Because it wasn't two weeks before, you know, January 1st. When was that like kind of... Was it months before? Was it weeks before? Um, Many, many weeks. You've got to get through, you know, obviously mixing. And the deadline keeps getting pushed back and keeps getting pushed back. And I mean, I'm, I'm going to date myself, but, you know, the fax machine just spitting out letters from the record company. This, you know, with skulls and crossbones on it, this has to be done. But you're, you know, you're fighting that deadline. But especially if it is, you know, a end of the year uh, album, it has to be out by Christmas. I mean, it just has to be. So like the Dangerous album, we were mixing that hard end of October. Um, I could probably cheat here. Do you know when Dangerous was released? I thought it was around Thanksgiving for some reason. November 26th. Yep. So Thanksgiving. we were still mixing it. I still have a copy of the calendar somewhere. We were still mixing it like third week in October or something like that. Third, it, it was creeping right up on Halloween. So the artwork was done. I mean, everything was ready to go. We just had to deliver a product. So we got, we brought that to Bernie Grumman Mastering. I'm sure we worked all night and slept on packing blankets or something because that's just what you do. And uh, and boom, it was gone. It was sent off to uh, uh, Terre Haute, Indiana and uh, whatever the pressing plant was in New Jersey. And they just, in fact, it's, I, somebody actually sent me a link to I think it was the history album. It was kind of funny. This these pressing plants that were all like tooled up and ready to go. And it was kind of interviewing some of the people that were, you know, producing the history. I think it was history. And it's a it's kind of a cute little YouTube video. And yeah, I mean it was it have it just has to happen 24 hours a day because back then it was all physical media. And it just has to go, 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 get into the stores, get uh and get out there. So yeah, approximately four weeks. And then, you know, we would usually try and release the first single, you know, two or three weeks. Like, like on the Bad album, I think we we released um, I Just Can't Stop Loving You about six weeks before the album came out, just to get the public excited and start getting things going. That's And this is one of those things where I talk about both Jacksons in this sense, Janet and Michael, is there are these albums that have 13, 14 tracks, and they have like eight or nine singles on them. 
Like, right. It's right. they're just grabbing all. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we could have more singles, and then everyone's like, "Why did they just release them all?" And then you look and go, "Well, these now have been charting these songs for two, almost three years. These <laughs> artists want to get onto the new thing. They're not trying. Like you've milked everything you can out of that." Right. But well, my Michael wants every song to be a single. Okay. Um, we, we, we came close. We, we didn't, I don't think we ever hit it a hundred percent, but pretty close. Cause that was one of those things going back through. And the funny thing is Michael Jackson, cause you and I talked before about this. I go, Michael Jackson was one of those artists where I was always confused because his music was always playing. So I never knew what the current single was versus what the previous single was. Oh, that's funny. In, okay. in Chicago, I could listen to the soul stations and have this. I could listen to B96 pop and have this and I could, right. and the adult contemporary was playing this song. So even if I heard scream on one channel, I could maybe hear childhood on another channel. <laughs> and so I'm like, what song is this? And then when I started collecting music and everything, I was like, this is great. I want this version or the bonus tracks that are only available in this right. country, so on and so forth. Right. Is there any song, your preference that you've ever worked on with Michael Jackson, where if you could go back in time and you had the ability to press a button and say, this was gonna be given a full single treatment, like played on radio, performed, video and everything what is one song that comes to your mind that you're like you know what if i could press that button and just it happens mm -hmm. i would pick this song i should be really mean and say like an unreleased song that, that no one's ever heard of <laughs> people are smashing that. their phones right now <laughs> um, i won't do that in other words a song that never really reached where it could have gone is that kind of what you're saying even just a song that was n like not chosen as a single is there some hidden gem or a b-side or something where not that it didn't go number one, it went number two. This is something that was never given the single treatment of being played to radio, had a right. music video or a performance. I mean, I think, trying to remember, did I think Give In To Me wasn't really a big single. I think it, I think it was number one, like in New Zealand or, or someplace. I mean, a lot of people know that song. I, I'm going to repeat myself, but the, ori the original version of Someone Put Your Hand Out or for all time. So there's a song that Steve Picaro wrote called For All Time. You know that song, right? It's a really pretty song. And that one, believe it or not, there, there's, you know, my girls tease me. I have four daughters and it doesn't happen very often, but every now and this is my music room that, that I'm sitting in right now. I worked on some really cool stuff and I worked with a really cool guy. And every now and then I just have to kind of come up here and be my, by myself and just pop some music on. And someone put your hand out and for all time are just two of my go-to songs because they're so beautiful. It's the follow-up song that Steve Beccaro wrote after Human Nature. So it's kind of got a little bit of a Human Nature vibe to it. That probably could have and would have been a really beautiful single. Um, it just didn't quite make the album. And someone put your hand out. Again, it's just, it's such a pretty song. The the old, the unreleased kind of raw version of it is it's just, it's such a cool, I don't want to use the word raw again, but it's just such a natural vocal sound that Michael, that Michael created on that song that uh, it's very, very real. See, I like this. And these are those questions that it's fun to ask specifically because you're somebody who was in the room while all these things were happening. So it's your take of the songs is vastly different than us as like the outsiders listening to these. I'll, I'll, add, I'll, add, I'll add a third one to the list. And I've already mentioned this one also. Streetwalker should have been on the Bad Album. I like the grittier stuff, man. When Michael's a little, uh, 
just a little nastier. I, I think it's just, it's a really fun vibe for him. But Streetwalker and another song, Come Together, uh, by the Beatles, but Michael did his version of Come Together back on the Moonwalker album. We did those two songs, Streetwalker and Come Together, at the same time. Bill Bottrell recorded both of those um, at Westlake Studio C. So the vocal stylings of those two songs are so similar to me. And they always, they're kind of like conjoined twins because they're so different and yet they're they're so similar. But Streetwalker, I was always a cheerleader for that song and it just didn't... Uh, didn't quite make it. There's, I mean, the amount of questions and everything I get from people going, why? Why did this song not go? I'm like, why did I go? Brad is one person in this whole cog of everything, including, you know, at the time, Michael Jackson himself. But I right. think the funny thing is being able to finally hear those, the, the evolution of these albums specifically too. It's because so many times people are like, do you remember the first song that was made for the album? Do you remember the last song? And it's really interesting to hear these stories of like, not all these songs were cakewalks. Not all these songs were vastly different than the original versions of it. And I think it's the artistry. It's like a painter always playing with all these different colors and seeing what works, but they sometimes have to step away and go, okay, this is what the picture looks like now. Right. And so then let me ask you, what was the last studio time that you had with Michael Jackson? Do you remember like, what songs or anything you were working on and then the other question is if you want to talk about you're not active in the music industry like this anymore if you want to talk about that and the last part is can we talk about like in the studio with mj so people can learn how to listen to you see you in person get more kind of in-depth convo i mean the last project the last full project i worked with michael on history and we did it took, took us about 16 months to do the history project I was around a little bit for blood and it was a little blood on the dance floor. And I was around a little bit for invincible. Um, Invincible, I believe was mostly done in Miami and blood. I think a lot of it was done in, uh, in Switzerland, but when they'd come back to LA, I'd pop in and, you know, say hi to everybody and invincible. And I have to be very careful not to, uh, it was just different. It was a different kind of project. It's a different sounding album. And I stopped by the studio to go, you know, see a couple of friends. Somebody told me, they said, we really miss you guys. Um, the guys that, you know, that really mm-hmm. worked on like the Dangerous and History album. It was a, it was a different team and, and that's okay. It was just a different vibe. And Invincible sounds very different than, uh, than dangerous or history. So the last full album I worked on was was history. Why why did I leave or why did I not go back or whatever phrase you want to use? True, and I'm being totally honest. The music industry had changed, and I, I wrote it hard for more than a decade. And the late '90s were were a difficult time. Um, Napster was was coming out. Home studios were coming out. The whole feel had changed. But the other part of it, well, there are two other parts, and I'll I'll be very brief, is I had a growing family. And all of a sudden, I'm not 24 years old anymore. And the old days of working until two, three in the morning and getting up at 8.30 and getting to the studio Mm. and doing it again and again and again, we're getting a little bit tiring. But I, but Michael had me doing so many other projects. I was working like a maniac at the ranch. I was building music systems. I was providing music systems for his music videos. I did a bunch of the audio playback for, for the ghosts movie. 
Um, I was working on in the closet for, for uh, those videos. So I was still around Michael a lot in some ways, almost more because now he's calling me all the time, wanting more stuff at the ranch and Hey, can you go do this? Can you do that? I've got this video coming up. So I was still in very close contact with him. It was just, you know, I, I credit him. He kind of helped me start my second career, my second company. And I've been building music systems ever since. So I can mm -hmm. still be very creative in my own way. And there, there's way more details that I'm going to go into, but um, it was a good change for me. It was a very healthy change. And and I don't, I don't look back with any regret as much as I hate to say it. I, I don't need to have been part of the invincible album start to finish. Um, I don't lay awake at night wishing that had happened. Um, no disrespect, but it was just a different time. So the last time I saw Michael was around 2004, 2005. And it's it's not a story I'm going to go into right now, but it, it was an unpleasant story. He uh, His financial situation was terrible. And it was just sad because he wanted more and more and more. He wanted Neverland just to keep going. And uh, there was just no money. And it was, and I'm not driven by money, but I can't work for free. And so there were a lot of us that just weren't getting paid. And it was a really sucky time. So that was the last time I saw him. Michael passed in 2009. and. It was awful. I I was, you know, you, you lose a friend like that. You know, you just have 10,000 memories that, that come, come pouring in. Around 2011, a group of uh, MJ fans from, from France reached out to me. We actually met at Bruce Wadeen's house. I was at Bruce's house having dinner one night in Florida. I think Saida Garrett was there too, I think. So these MJ fans are there. It was like six, six people from, from France. And they were trying to get Bruce to come to Paris and, and tell some stories. And I know the people that don't know the whole backstory, they don't understand when I say Bruce, but Bruce Swadeen is just this wonderful, great big ship captain of an engineer. He's like, I don't want to tell stories. He called me Braddy Daddy. He's like, talk to Braddy Daddy. He's better at telling stories than I am. And so they, all of a sudden, all the attention looks at me and they're like, you know, do you want to come to, to France? And And I'm like, I don't know. And they said, just, just, you know, come and, and, you know, we, you know, we'll pay, we'll pay your, your airfare and your hotel and your wife and everything. And, and we'll book a studio and just come and tell some stories. So it's funny if I open this closet, I could show you the box, but I have a box of tapes. Well, it, it's an empty box. Now the tapes are locked away, but I, I, brought this box. We, we flew to Paris in 2012, booked a studio. And it was like, there was like 12, 12 people there and 10 or 12 people. And we were there for 12 hours, started at nine in the morning, went till nine at night. I'd pull a tape out like this and I'd say, you know, oh, here's one I worked on. I'd play the tape and then I'd start to cry and I would start yeah. remembering a story and I would tell the story. I, I mean, I didn't cry the whole time, but it, it was a very emotional day and we got through it. And everyone was exhausted and they gave me a slice of pizza and, um, and we were just exhausted. And so I, you know, we did some sightseeing a few days and, and came home and I was like, well, that was kind of interesting. Maybe there's something here. So I created what's called in the studio with MJ and we put a, I hate the word show, but we put a show together where I take people through three albums, bad, dangerous, and history. And I tell a lot of stories and I play a lot of music and share some private video. And we started it. I thought if we're going to do it, let's go to New York. 
And I did two of them back to back in New York. And I was terrified. I was petrified. And I had a studio full of people. It's like 40, 50 people at each show. And it worked. And so we've been doing, uh, since then, I've done it, I don't know, in 26 countries and 240 events, something like that. And we only do a few of them a year. I still have a full-time job. I'm not I'm not a hot shot. I'm not one of the big producers that's, you know, getting rich every other minute. But it's a place where people can really kind of meet the real Michael Jackson and hear how we made these records. And uh, it's part labor of love and part unexplainable hobby. And, uh, and I've brought special guests in, I've brought, uh, uh, John Barnes and, uh, Matt Forger and Brian Vibberts. And I never, I never got Bruce. I mean, we lost Bruce a couple of years ago, mm. uh, Bill Batrell and, and different people. And it's just a place where we just share stories and memories and, uh, share some music, kind of pull the curtain back for a few minutes and let people meet the real Michael Jackson. See, I love this because then it's, this is truly about honoring the creativity, the legacy. There's so much hard work that goes into all of what was created, more Mm -hmm. than us just pressing play or putting the needle on the record and hearing these other stories. And when Nick reached out and he said, James, you need to talk to Brad. This is like your, this is your wheelhouse of this. Shout out to Nick. I I love him. Everyone remixed by Nick. But the great thing is... So many of the listeners said, in general, when I've talked about other songs, they're like, I forgot about that song, and I went and I bought the album again, or I bought this and I re-listened. And so people are going back to those songs and going, oh man, this is this is amazing. This is revisiting, it's that nostalgia, because no matter what, Michael Jackson created music that has connected with people from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, and I think... When people talk about their favorite Michael Jackson song or at a wedding and a Michael Jackson song comes on and you're you're all over the place. Right. I went to school in London and when I was there, I did not I thought Americans loved Michael Jackson then when I was there or anywhere <laughs> in Asia. It's like everyone is just it's like a hundred times more times. than I could ever even think. If you're enjoying this interview, make sure to rate it and tell your friends about it. And check out my other interviews with so many great, iconic creatives. And big shout out to my Patreon supporters. You all rock. To join me, go to theoriginaldoll.com. Your support means so much and keeps the show going. Now, for those who want to know about some upcoming dates for In the Studio with MJ and how to connect with Brad, here's some information. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the flip side. In the studio with MJ, in the studio with MJ.com is uh, kind, kind of our landing spot. And we're on, I think, all the social media platforms. Uh, I, I need to hit, I need to hit 10,000 on TikTok. So I need a few more TikTok followers. Um, we're doing pretty good on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook is where it, where it all started. And I, I, everybody hates on Zuckerberg, but I'm like, you know, kind of like you and your podcast, how else are you going to reach people in Africa and Israel and Russia and South America? if it weren't for social media and podcasts. So I, I love it. I, I, I think it's a really incredible uh, platform to work on. So yeah, if you just look for In the Studio with MJ, you'll find us on X, formerly Twitter, you name it, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, the whole thing. We also do live. So I do have a podcast and I'm on YouTube. I'm not nearly as, podcasts are hard, man. I give you so much credit because <laughs> it takes an amazing amount of discipline and preparation so I think I've only got like, I don't know, 10 or 12 episodes of my podcast, but we, we've been, we do another one every now and then. And then we do live streams every now and then. So I have a live stream called the virtual tour of Neverland. 
you know, it is kind of silly. I have a great big martini and, but I take people through, it's about a two to three hour tour for lack of a better word. I sit here in my studio, but I really pull the curtain back on Neverland and it was a remarkable place. Absolutely unbelievable. Even MJ fans, when they can really kind of go through it, kind of almost land by land or, you know, area by area, they start to see just how remarkable it was. And the fact that Michael gave everything away, um, every event, every Make-A-Wish Foundation, every cancer child, everything, the amount of money that he poured into that place is just staggering. And in some ways it's, it's sad. I mean, it does have a bit of a, a sad, um, he was, you know, he, he was not the, the greatest money manager, um, but he just wanted that place to be unbelievable. So I, I'm really proud of the tour of Neverland. It gives people a glimpse into what Neverland was like. And then December 8th will be in Stockholm. I'm Swedish. So anytime I get to go back to Stockholm and it's my birthday week, um, that's going to be a lot of fun. We're still kind of planning 2024. Definitely going to get back to Australia. Um, we're going to try and get back to Tokyo. And then we'll see. And I, I got to go back to Ireland. Um, I haven't been to Dublin in a while. So um, after taking a couple of years off for COVID, it's just, it's so gratifying to be back. And I love doing these things. It's just, it's a fun little inner a way for people to kind of like you've been saying, hear who the real Michael Jackson was, or I prefer just to say Michael, you know, Michael Jackson was on stage, but Michael was in the studio with us and he was a remarkable, absolutely remarkable man. Brad, honestly, thank you so much for spending your time here and, and being open and honest with us at the Original Doll. I appreciate it. Thank you, James. This was an absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you for your time and your hard work. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Here's some fun little tidbits of information about Scream on the Dance Club songs. It would go number one for two weeks. It would be one of Michael Jackson's six number one hits, 25 songs overall, including songs that charted after he had passed. Scream would be one of Janet Jackson's 20 number one hits on the charts and 39 overall songs. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, the.original.doll, and on X at James Rodriguez or TikTok, the James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. If you enjoy this, make sure to rate it and tell your friends about it. And once again, as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it. See you on the flip side.